Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Bradley Byers tells me he is a long time retired, but he's no doubt one of the busiest people you'll ever meet. It must be for a reason. That's the name of his book. So long time retired in Texas. I uh, I grew up in Texas. I went to University of Texas, got a master's degree there in uh, journalism and worked here in Austin for five or six years before taking off for other places. And then after my retirement a long time ago, I decided to move back here. My family are nearby, not in Austin, but uh, in this part of the country anyway. And I'm now 92 years old. Wow. You, woo, you're the same age as my mom. You sound great. You well, sound thank great. You. Yeah. <laughs> so were you a journalist? I was a journalist, yes. For all of those uh, years. Where, what did you do? What kind of work did you do? For a brief period, well, for, well, actually a few years, I worked as a a church editor of church publication, which is partly what got me into the subject of this novel. Uh, but then I became uh, a founding editor, actually the second ranking editor of Southern Living Magazine at his, at his founding. I was hired before the magazine was started. First uh, editorial staff member. And after a while there, I went to Washington and I was the public information officer for the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. And then when the Department of the U.S. Department of Energy was formed, I, I moved to the federal government, to the Department of Energy, and was the uh, public affairs officer for solar energy and other renewable energies. I was actually the government's first spokesman for solar energy, first press spokesman. That is so interesting. So you're 92 years old. I mean, we've I'm been talking. Yeah, and we've been talking about solar energy for how long? <laughs> and why don't we all have it? Like, how come uh -huh. it's not affordable? Why? Because because Reagan was elected president and did not believe in it. He ran on a program of destroy of doing away with the Department of Energy. Uh, Carter had put solar panels on the White House. President Carter had. President Reagan took them off. And uh, played, he didn't destroy the department. Almost everybody was laid off, though. I transferred, I stayed with the Department of Energy, but I transferred to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a, a division of the Department of Energy is. And I retired there in 1993, would you believe? I've been retired since 1993. No, I can't believe that. <laughs> it's wonderful. Breast job by far a person could ever have. Well, I, if you're a journalist, you're a type A. You've been busy. I guarantee you've been busy for the last 30 some years, right? Oh, that's why I retired. I wanted to yeah. work in, in drama. And I wrote plays and did small acting parts. And then I wrote short stories. And eventually I started to work on a novel. That is so interesting. And you're the kind of guy who believes you're here for a reason. Well, that's not necessarily a conclusion one should draw. Okay. And the book opens that question. I mean, I'm just saying the title, right? <laughs> I, you, you it know. opens that question. Okay. My book is about fate from a Christian perspective. Okay. Does fate exist? That is, do things happen for a reason? Are they planned? And the young it follows the joys and the unexpected sorrows of a young woman who thoroughly, sincerely, firmly believes that um, things do happen for a reason. But things start going wrong. And how does she justify that if things are planned? If her life is planned, why do things go wrong? That's what the novel is about. You chose a female character. Why? <laughs> I chose a female character because it would be harder to write than a male character. I would learn more things by doing the research that I needed to do. And it was just more of a challenge. Not that writing it about a male character wouldn't have been challenging, it would. But to me, it was more challenging to write it about a female character. 
I've lived the life of the male character right. and had many close friends. Well, I've had some close friends who were females also, but not on the same basis, not on the same level. So I haven't had as much chance to learn about women as I have about men. I just think it's interesting. You cover things like she asks why, you know, as leader of her church's youth group, was she exposed to sexual advances by her youth minister? Right. Right. So how does she reconcile that? It wasn't easy. <laughs> she continues trying to reconcile it. It is, it is a source. Uh, by the way, I had uh, an advisor who was um, very experienced, a, a lady who's very experienced in some of these areas. Okay. Uh, and she gave me awfully good help on that particular question and the PTSD that follows that experience. Okay. And then she had a more serious one later. Um, and these things, she struggled. I carry her from baptism at about age 12 until about age 38. Okay. She's trying to rebuild her life when things haven't gone the way that she thought they were going to go. But she's still bound by that belief. That she was taught. Uh, I, well, this is spelled out. I have her actually attending classes in her home church that taught her these things. And they teach the reader these things. So I wanted the reader to understand why she believes the way she believes. And it's not really a religious book. Uh, it, it's not inspirationally Christian. It's, um, But it is about the way that a strong religious belief affects everything in your life. I can see how that could happen. And I'm just wondering, does she come to the realization that these unexpected things are part of the lesson of life. You don't want to read the book, do you? I do want to I'm read the book. I teasing. find this fascinating because because uh, that's kind of like I feel like I'm here for a reason, uh -huh. and I you know I've raised my children. You know I don't you know whether you raise your children Catholic or Lutheran or whatever. As long as you know you're here for a reason, that there's a there's a bigger plan here. Like no matter how bad things get in your life, maybe the reason this is happening is because you need to work through this. You need to prove to yourself that this bad thing that has happened, you're going to get through it. You're going to get through it. You're the kind of person that I wrote the book for. Really? Then I guess I'm going to have to read it. You know, it's very frustrating to interview 50 people in a month and, you know, have people say to me, did you read my book? And I'm like, no, I really no, didn't. All I get, I, I, you know, I have a full-time job. I'm a reporter. You know, uh, I, I can read the blurbs, but it's just fascinating to talk to you. You're a guy. Here you are examining this young woman and, and dealing with, I mean, nothing throws you for a loop more than you know sexual advances from a youth minister like are you kidding me she must have been flipped out you know by the way i should, should tell you um that at least three-fourths of the major incidents like that one that happened in the book are experiences that people have told me about over the years i'm sure they're not they're not made up but in detail they are they're fiction right but Right. The happening of an incident related to that, somewhat like that, yeah, happened to a person that I know. That person is not in the book. Nobody is in the book. Everybody right. is created equal. <laughs> oh, everybody is created equal as fiction. <laughs> yeah. Who Who's your audience here? Is this the book that you bring to youth group, and everybody has to read and discuss? You know, like what What was your intent? in writing this book? To capture people who have your kind of background, who have questions, who like exploring important issues, important questions, written for, I would say, any churchgoer from 15 until 50 or beyond, and more so for women than for men. But now, there's a co-protagonist, a male, and he's very important in the book. Okay. Uh, but it focuses first on her. It's a book in two parts. Now, that's 
that's just you turn a page and it says part two. Okay. But but there's an 18-year time span between time lapse between part one and part two. And the male becomes mm, probably dominant in this last half of the book. He's the student of ministry that drops her. No. 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 That guy was a major problem to her. Uh, he, What happens uh, in the novel is that she is in a bad marriage, but she was taught that God planned her marriage for her. This is difficult, and that marriage is a contract between you, the man you marry, and God. And you don't break the contact with God. So she doesn't believe in divorce. That's people I know <laughs> who are like that. Although she's not a person I know, but she's a combination of, of characteristics of people I know. Um, and to give her life some meaning now in, with a bad marriage, she goes back in search of a, a doctoral degree in social psychology. Now, <laughs> I chose social psychology because, and I put this in the book, although not for me, I mean, not identifying me. When this character worked at the National Academy of Sciences, he was asked to be, he was served on a panel of judges for the American Psychological Association Book of the Year Award. And one of those books was The Social Animal, a book on social psychology. And he was fascinated by it. And he still is (laughs) 20 years later. But she comes to the University of Texas, which is where he teaches, which is natural because I went to school there and I know what it's like. I could write realistically, although I came down and did on-site research uh, during the course of, of writing the novel, spent time in the social psychology department and in the new journalism department. And the two of them meet this way, but he's a professor and she is a doctoral student, not in his college, you know, in the university, but not in his college at the university. And he becomes very important in her life. And she becomes important in his life. But she's married to this guy back in Tulsa, which is where I came here from. And it's in Tulsa because I know what Tulsa's like. I can write realistically about it. Right. So that that, that has to be a real struggle for her. Absolutely. Tremendous sure. struggle for her. Becomes a struggle for him also. You know, if if you were in a, let's say, a platonic marriage, one which all uh, other things have disappeared, you, you just live with one another now, and you fell in love with a married man, well, let's say you weren't married. He's not married, uh, this co-protagonist. When you fall in love with this married person, it's a problem to you, too. So it is a problem for both of them, and this is what drives the last half of the book. But all these issues of her life come into play, and they're dealt with. Now she has someone to talk about them with, somebody close that she can look up to and can discuss these things. So there is a lot of that in the last part of the book. Greater tension in the last half than in the first half. I bet. <laughs> By the way, just, just for the fun of sharing with you, um, in the year 1998 and the year 2000, I went to Switzerland for two weeks of vacation. Okay. By myself, the first time, well, some high school classmates, the first time I arranged the trip. And uh, then two years later, my sister accompanied me. And, we, and at the time, I thought, well, I'm here in Switzerland. I didn't expect to be, but it'd be a shame to waste this. I'm going to put this in a novel I'll write someday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my sister and I were on a train going from Geneva to the city of Fribourg where we would change trains and go to our smaller city of Thun, where we were staying in an apartment for two weeks. But on that train, which had a booth-type seating, right. my, sis- my sister and I sat opposite a very attractive woman of perhaps 30, only one on the other side facing us, so we had all this time to talk. And she was on her way back from the Sorbonne, where she'd been giving guest lectures on twins in anthropology, which was her field. Um, And 
I asked permission to take a picture of her. She agreed. I said, I'm going to put you in a novel someday. Well, that would be nice. So I did. <laughs> she does not she does not play a big role, but uh, she's in there. The last the last chapter of the book is set in Switzerland. Beautiful. I just wanted to take advantage of that and get some additional flavor into the book. Uh, where it's possible, I deal with real places, even real restaurants. Why not? If I've got have these characters going to a, a restaurant, they're going to have conversation that's important there. Why make up a restaurant? Why not use one that's real? And I also had marketing of the book in mind at that time. There is a restaurant here in Austin. I haven't gone to. I haven't approached on this yet. But I had the couple, the two of them, meet for dinner at that restaurant nothing nothing happened there it's just they sat there they talked and they moved on back to his house where he was going to give her a dance lesson because i taught dance also you're too funny <laughs> boy you just everything you ever did in your life i think is in this book well, right, okay. but i'm not but listen you i mean you everybody probably knows you're a writer right right i came here from tulsa i'd lived there 30 years Right. And I'd been not quite the charter member of this Presbyterian church there, but close to it. Uh, I took a box of eight autographed books to the post office and mailed them to that church because eight people there want autographed copies. Nice. And they very probably are going to have a discussion group on it afterwards. There you go. Uh, so I ordered books. I ordered a packet of 10 books. When they arrived, I autographed them and put them back in, in uh, the box and took it to the post office. They probably will hold a discussion group. They want to. But the, the other thing, this restaurant I told you about, I have the two characters meeting there. Actually, my granddaughter has agreed to go to that restaurant and show them the book and say, you really need to buy this book and a couple of extra copies of it <laughs> and display them here because your people will go away from your restaurant talking about it being in this book. Great. And you will get extra customers that way. So you need to do it. Then there's another restaurant that plays a much more important part and is in two chapters of the book here in Austin that claims to be the oldest continuously operating restaurant in the state of Texas, uh, Schultz's Beer Garden. And I have a meeting there. It plays a role in the book. But they need a display there of these books. Right. Absolutely. Uh, what a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. I enjoyed it greatly. I like right. to talk to people. I can tell. Anyway, That's why I'm you were a, a journalist. <laughs> right. Well, that's uh -huh. part of the reason. You have been a pleasure beyond belief. So thank you. Same here. Take it easy. Helping others is what Amy Hood does as a special ed teacher and now as an author with her book, Quieting the Chaos by Learning to Lean. So when did this all begin? Um, I think my struggles in my life previously has been the influence on my whole life um, of wanting to help others who had circumstances, situations, disabilities that they had no control over and how it impacted their life. And I wanted to show that you you can still be successful. You can still go out. And yes, unfortunately, you're still going to have those struggles that not many people understand, but you can still go on with life. Is that what happened to you? Uh, that is what happened to me. Um, ever since I can re remember being small, I've always been scared of crowds. Um, I would get worked up to the point where I was nauseous. Um, I never wanted to leave my dad's side or if it wasn't him, it was my sister. And so I've struggled all my life with anxiety and, you know, it was while my parents tried to get me help at different times, it just was a time and an era when there wasn't a whole lot of options available. Um, so this past time, um, I, I'm diagnosed with clinical depression, early onset anxiety, and borderline personality disorder. And I've I've been able to control it pretty much most of my life. Um, there's been times when, of course, it's 
it's defeated me for for a few days um but this past uh six to seven years have been really hard on me my parents became ill i was the only one that was still home in the area i had a job and so i was their sole caretaker and trying to maintain my my life I ended up having to sacrifice pretty much all of me to them, especially the last three years. And, and, you know, I have siblings and they were there when they could be, but it's only so much you can do when you don't live there, you know? And so it was a terrible situation. They knew I was put in, they tried to offer suggestions. My parents being up in age, um, you know, did not want to leave home they wanted to stay in their home and they didn't see what they were doing to me because i know they would never intentionally do anything to harm me but they just did not see what it was the impact it was having on me so when they both passed away i was kind of at a breaking point not only mourning their deaths but i just was not the same person i was before and COVID happened on top of all of it so everyone was isolated and I ended, I stayed another year and taught and it all happened one night when my siblings tried to call me and that's kind of the telltale sign that I'm in trouble when I don't answer a phone. And that night I didn't intentionally not answer their phone. It happened. I had been to the doctor and I had put my phone on silent and I never turned it back on. And I feel God intervened in that moment by not reminding me to turn my phone back on because I was in a deep, deep place. Um, and I needed them, but I wasn't willing to admit that I needed them. What happens when you go into a deep, deep place? Um, you just don't see that there's any hope out there for you, that you will always struggle with, um, the fears you always struggle with them the rest of your life you cannot overcome them you you just you just lose hope altogether that you'll ever be happy again and my dad had been the you know the rock for me he had been the constant support that i needed and so this was the first time in my life i was actually having to face things without him and that's hard to admit at age 47 that you need your dad, you know, but I did and I didn't have him. So because I didn't have him, I felt like I had no one. And uh, that night, my sister came in the middle of the night and, um, and th this was truly where it started. She came in the middle of the night and she had a key to the house, of course. And I was living, I had bought my parents home. So I, cause I thought I had to. That was the thing that I should do. And I bought their home and she came in and my dog started barking. And so I, I, I knew it was somebody had to have known, even though it was two o'clock in the morning, because they had to have had a key or my dogs would have made noise before then. And she's walking up the door and I'm thinking, yeah, I think it's one of them, but what if it's not? And then she opened the door and I saw her face and I just jumped in her arms and said, please don't make me go back. And I was referring to teaching at that time. It was the stress of everyday life on top of having to mask that day in and day out for so many years to be there for the students um, that had finally just, it had got me. I, I, was, I was totally brought to my knees. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, I, I, I never want anyone to feel sorry for me because what i face i think there's so many people out there that are that face it but don't want to admit to it they're too scared of what people might say or how they'll be judged was this your lowest point and was this the point where you somehow managed to find your way out of it oh uh, this was it was just the beginning um my sisters was like you you can't stay here alone you know, I, I need to be with you. You need to be close to family. And at that point I agreed. And, but there were so many mixed emotions because 
I was wanting to stay home and live in my parents' home and take care of their property, which I loved. Um, I I love my job. I mean, my school that I taught at, my students, they were my everything for many, many years. But yet I knew that I was at a point that either I had to do something about this now or I would be unhappy and miserable the rest of my life. And there was no dad anymore or mom anymore that could that could um, take that pain away. So I moved to the Charlotte area. Um, well, I, I, I came and stayed for a while and sought help um, in a day treatment. And the first month, I don't even remember. It's a blur to me. But there was a therapist there that she just was able to get through to me and make a dip, huge difference in my life. And um, it's because of her that I wrote the book. Or I was, I should say, um, I, I, it's not her that I wrote the book for, but she is the one that inspired me and believed in me that I could make a difference. And that's really who I am. I want to make a difference, whether it's in my family's life or my friend's life, or, but I want to make a positive difference in the world. And so I'm, I guess about six months in, or six weeks into treatment, I started journaling. And it was, it was basically, at first I was writing letters to my parents, just telling them, you know, the things that you're so scared to say in person or when they're here on earth. And then it became, I started writing to my therapist to let her know, hey, I discovered this today or this came to my mind. Does this connect with this? And I was really just studying myself and my feelings and when any feeling came up i started thinking okay what was on my mind when that when i felt that anxiety where does it stem from and trying to really find the roots of where my pain was from and um i i kept topics and she kept telling me that you know i should really read a book or write a book that she thought it was um would be very helpful to others and i of course was like you're crazy <laughs> i'm not the crazy one here you are <laughs> um because because me you know i'm from the country nobody really knows me but the people in my community i am anything but social and out there and me to write a book and tell everybody what's in my mind and how i feel and how it's impacted my life i, I just couldn't see it it you know but I kept writing and, and near our time together, um, she brought up the book again. And I was like, are you serious? Do you really think that I, that my story could possibly help those suffering as well as the families who have an individual who suffers from any type of mental illness, whether it's anxiety or whatever. Um, so I was very much, inspired by her and her belief in me and in my story and when i finished with her and i moved to a dialectal behavioral therapy program i started really thinking maybe my story does does have the potential if nothing else just to let someone else know that you're not alone right um you know everything i faced are everyday struggles that all of us will face at some point losing parents, selling the family home, finding a new job, moving to a new area. It's all struggles that we will all face at some time. Right. And so um, after I spent some time in that program and, and saw that, you know, the things I said and, and actually had positive impacts on the people in the group, I thought maybe she wasn't wrong maybe i i truly can write this book and if it helps just one person it's worth me putting all of um all of my business you could say out there for everyone to know well i mean by now you must know that it has helped i believe it has um i know my friends some of us close close to me have shared with me but i haven't gotten a great bit of feedback yet 
but now like i said if only one person read it and only one person is moved by it or more importantly that sees that there is hope then um i'm i feel like i'm it's successful already exactly um I think that my challenge is I haven't gotten into any groups where I feel like um, it's not people that know me, though. I want to be able to go out and see people that don't know me and don't know my my background because, you know, everyone, you know, if they know you already, they've already put that love in their heart and they're not going to, they're not going to dare um, question anything you wrote or anything like that but as people that don't know you I think that they have a little bit more openness and honesty about it well it, it sounds like you're on your way I hope so um, but you know it's not it's not necessarily my way I hope it's it's a way for someone else to seek help get help um even those that, like i said that have no um history of any type of illnesses i think it can be beneficial to them because the more and more i'm out i see that there are a lot of people that struggle that we have no idea about nope you're right absolutely absolutely well good job amy you've done an amazing Thanks. thing Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Jessica Marion King has been writing for 10 years, fantasy, fiction, but decided her first published book would be poetry entitled Applaud the Chain. So why is that? Well, I thought to myself, I think it's time to actually do this. Like, I'm ready. I'm just going to submit it, see what happens. And it happened. And I thought, you know what? I think other people can relate to this, so I need to get it out there. Why did you pick um, the publisher that you picked? They had a good reputation, um, and um, everyone was very nice there. They were um, very delightful to work with. Fulton Books was very nice. Oh, good. What's it about? So it was about my life in poetry when I was 16 through age 21. So I wrote it when I was 16 to help me get through every struggle that I went through. Instead of journaling, I didn't like to journal. I liked to like um, write poetry, so it made more sense to me. And I didn't like my handwriting because <laughs> it's like chicken scratch. But <laughs> <laughs> I like to write poetry on my computer. Yeah, I know. I hate to write that. My mom always says, you have to write thank you notes. You have to handwrite oh, them. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, well, nobody can read them. <laughs> what, what, what do I do? So right. do we start the book, you're 16, and then does it move? Do you actually tell a story through the poetry in your book, or is it each poem a standalone poem? Each poem is a standalone poem. So what kinds of things are you dealing with? Um, bipolar disorder. So everything I went through as a child um, and teenager was through bipolar disorder. And I thought every thought in my head would go down in paper and I thought why not just write my poetry and just every one is about things I went through. Did you know you had bipolar disorder? When I was in fourth grade I was diagnosed. So what was your life like before that? Difficult because I was born with it. I was born with bipolar. I just didn't know until I was in fourth grade. It was very hard. It was I was left out, I was moody, I was suicidal, I was so many things. Wow. Did you have a lot of support from your family? My mom and sister were the, my best support. How, how do you control it now? Like, do you know when you're feeling something maybe you shouldn't be feeling? Do you know how to control it now? Yes, I do. I um, write more poetry. <laughs> I'm writing another book. And I like to talk to my mom, my sister. I like to write things down that are good about myself. I, I'm, on, I'm stable. I'm on a medication that works great for me. And just the people around me, my friends and family are very um, helpful when I need something. I, I mean, I think that there are people, you know, we know in our lives that might possibly fall into this category. And I'm thinking of someone in my life right now. And they fight mm -hmm. it tooth and nail. And I don't understand 
is it hard to admit or I mean, isn't your life so much better once you get help? Yes, so much better. If people go off medications or people are struggling, I suggest getting help. I really do. Do you, Is it not uncommon to resist? Is it just because you don't want to admit that there's something wrong? Yes, some people want to, like, for example, my dad, he was bipolar as well. He got diagnosed when he was later in life. Um, he didn't like to admit it. He didn't like to talk about it. Hence why I didn't mention him and why... He wasn't a big support because he didn't accept it and he was struggling with it throughout his whole life. And didn't even know it. No. Is it different for everyone? Like, is there something particular that you go through? Like an episode? I don't even know. I don't know the terminology here. So forgive me for being ignorant. But yeah, (laughs) like, what's it like? What? So like, like episodes you go through or like, what's it like to have it? Both. So what's it like to have it is when it's in your head and bipolar is basically mood disorder. So you go up and down in mode. Some people are suicidal. Some people do drugs. Some people like to cover it up with, like I said, drugs again. But I never did that. Um, my dad liked to just hide and not do anything about it. Rage out, lash out. Um, what I like to do in my head is having bipolar is to think about what's going on around me and to help myself mostly and others do you answer your question what (laughs) kinds of things do you think like give me an example like say i'm having like way back when i was having a bad day i think there's no point in living there's no point in i made a plan i would either think of something like that or i'd go to my mom and be like mom i'm having a really bad day when i was a teenager i would act on those things and i probably committed try to commit suicide a couple times what did you do um, I overdosed. I tried to, I stabbed myself oh. when I was 16 with a knife and I had a surgery. I thought that would end it, but that didn't. <laughs> Cause you just, so you just think that things are so bad. They're never going to get better. You can't see the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Cause I was in the psychiatric ward three times before I stabbed myself. And I thought this is not getting better. Nothing's working. You were in a psychiatric ward? Oh, yeah, five five times. <laughs> What's that like? Terrible. Oh, my gosh, it's terrible. It's like there's code yellow when you're with adolescents and teenagers. It's like code yellow, which means people are losing control and they have to be sedated, strapped down, um, oh. destroy their rooms. Um, no one's very helpful. But some people there are the nicest people you'll ever meet, too. Yeah. I made a lot of good friends. Are they okay now? Like lifelong friends? No, because you can't exchange numbers once you're in there. Oh. So the problem with that is I don't know how they're doing. Oh, that's got to hurt. It does. It really does. I feel like I'm missing like a couple people that I really liked in the hospitals. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's funny the way things work out in life. You know, you'll probably like be shopping or something and look up and go, oh, my God, look who it is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I would love for you to share 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 one of your poems. Pick one that you really like. Okay, let me get to the one that I think would be the best. Okay. This one's called Monster. Uh, Monsters in my head and brain ready to start. Come out to play and remind me your skin is like bark. No matter what I do to get rid of you, out of the question, this monster lives in me. I hear it roar and scream. It's my shadow. It's my face. It's my hair. It's what I taste. The monster lives beneath my skin in my bones that sticks to me like paste. It conjures up my emotions when I let it go. All hell breaks loose. Otherwise, I keep it caged to stay sane. I let it most loose in the month of May so I can be like everyone else the same. Oh, that's great. Do yeah. You, do, you have, do you have a place where you can read these poems? Are there open mic nights or something where you are? I don't think so, but I haven't gotten that far yet because it just kind of came out a little bit. Would you feel comfortable standing in front of people and reading your poetry? Yeah, I would. I bet you there's a, you got to look. I just yeah, saw I the do. other day. I forget. I guess we were, I was at, so I'm in Jersey at the Jersey Shore. And I okay. saw a sign that said open mic night at one of the places. And I was like, God, because there's so many people that write poetry. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people and I just think that's the greatest way to get it mm. out there. Yeah, it, I, I should look that up. 
you know, if you feel comfortable standing up and saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, and here's... Because, I, I mean, why did you write this book? I wrote this book because it helped me get through things, and then I wrote it to help others. Yeah, wrote it, it to help there. others. Yep. Yeah. They, yeah. Do you want to share mm-hmm. another one? Share another one. Go ahead. Sure. Especially young girls, man. Right? Yeah. Because it's so I, hard. It is so hard because I think you don't have to be bipolar to be nuts when you're a teenage girl. No, you don't. I mean, you, I was a com- I was a, a basket case on a regular basis. I was up. I was down. I was just hormonally, you're a mess, right? Yeah, it, exactly. And then to have like your bipolar on top of that, I can't even imagine. I know. It's very difficult. Huh. <laughs> All right. So I got to one of my poems. Um, I'm going to do suicide. Okay. Okay. So life is so short when you make your time come. Life runs out before you become. A person should feel happy and glad, not depressed and sad. So life comes to an end with a slice to the head. Everything ends now, but why can't I do it now? Everything's, nothing's stopping me. Thoughts of killing myself are never ending. Just one moment, that's all it takes to end my life. No mistakes. Ooh, that's a scary one. I bet your mom, did your mom freak out when she read your stuff? (laughs) She doesn't read it anymore. She's like, I can't read. It. I have to read it in like increments. Uh, yeah. I well, well. At least you're on the other side of it now. Can you imagine yeah. if she read that when you were a teenager? Oh no, it would be bad. Forget I, it. Read it. Oh my god. <laughs> so are you? You're in a school system though, right? Yes. I wonder if they would they let you like read some of your stuff. I thought of that actually, and I wonder if the kids would be okay with that because I'm not. I know some struggle with a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I I wonder. I could ask my I, everyone in my office space has read my book, so I'm wondering. I could ask that or share it with the staff. How 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 did they react? One person was crying. She Aww. said, "This is beautiful." She said, "I can't imagine what you went through." Other people asked, "Are you like this now? Are you okay?" And I said, "I'm fine." And <laughs> other people said, "This is a wonderful book." She they said, "You've got to keep sharing." Oh, good. And that's yeah. what you're going to do, right? Yes. <laughs> Great. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. It'll be all right, Maggie Jiggs. That's the name of Karen Thiel's book. It's what her mom used to tell her all the time. And she misses those words every single day. Hey, Karen, what are you doing out there in Wisconsin? I take care of my little brother. Aw, how old's your brother? He's 52. He has Down syndrome and Alzheimer's. No. Yeah. That's so down- young. That's so young. Well, he's he's actually age they age a little faster than we do, so his I I explained him this way. He's a grown man with an elderly man's health but a child's mind. Oh jeez. You're yeah. s- mm, you're so good to take care of him. He's so lucky. Oh, he's my buddy. Yeah, and he he's changing again right now, so we're having some we're having a hard road, but we All get right. through it. All right. Yeah. When do you have time to write? I usually do it after everybody's gone to bed and I'm done with my chores and I've got my shower in and then I sit down. Sometimes I get up during the night, whatever. Have you always been a writer? No. I was having a hard time with mom. You know, the, the yep, here I go. That's okay. Yeah. What happened? She had uh, emphysema. Right. So she basically, I tell, she slowly suffocated to death, you know, because emphysema affects your lungs. They slowly just stop working. That's you know, and it's, it's weird because her doctors always told her, you know, it's not going to be the emphysema that kills you. It's going to be a heart attack, a stroke. And, man, they were so dead wrong. My mom was 100% up to that point. It was her lungs just got tired and couldn't do it no more. How old was she? She was 86. Oh, not that old. Nope. And her 90, her, let's see, her older sister is, was 87 at the time. And she'd pick her up and they would go shopping and they would go to church and, oh, yeah. Was she a smoker by any chance? She was a smoker when she she said she started when she was like 14. And uh, my my dad and her were the same age. 
and he passed away at 52 oh. from a stroke and, and heart failure because of smoking. And she stopped right after that. So she was in her 50s. Yeah. It just caught up with her? Yeah. Yeah. Ah. There's environmental emphysema and there's smoking emphysema. And she got it from smoking. Wow. And she regretted the, the day of her diagnosis. That was her biggest regret that she even picked the damn thing up to begin with, she said. You know, but you figure if you quit in your 50s, by the time you're in your 80s, you're, isn't there healing that takes place? There is some healing, but it wasn't enough. Ugh. Because then her age caught up. Your body doesn't heal as easily as it does when you're younger. Right. You know, so, yeah. So this is what inspired this book. Yes, very much so. My mom, my mom came to live with me. Oh, God, in 93, I believe it was, because she wasn't doing good by herself. After, after my dad passed, she put herself through school, became a CNA. Then she went to work with the hospice groups. Absolutely loved her job. Wow. So she used to take care of, you know, a lot of people that were at the end of life because of emphysema. And she... She wasn't doing good by herself. I wasn't doing good by myself. So I'm like, come on, mom. And our story just went from there. She never left my side. A lot of it is me dealing with my loss, my grief, my sadness, while still having to take care of family. Take, I have a, a personal life of my own. My, my fiance is absolutely fantastic. Um, I have my own home 100 miles south of here, so I'm here during the week, and I go home on the weekends, and sometimes I have to take, you know, back and forth, and I still have household chores. I still have everything that I have to do. It's basically stories about how do what do I do next? How do I cope? How do I get through what's going on? I didn't have... I really did not have time to go find a therapist to talk to somebody. And I just sat down one day and started writing out my feelings. And the more I wrote and read it back to myself, I'm like, oh, okay, this is like going pretty well. Well, then mixed in with that, there's some some little crazy stories that we got into, mom and I, because she was always with me. You know, that that was my job eventually was taking care of her, and then also taking care of my little brother at the same time. I swear to God, this woman had to have every blanket that was ever out there. You know, we'd go, we'd go to Kohl's, you know, of all places, and, and it'd be like, Mom, do you really need that? And she'll look at me and say, yes, I do. <laughs> and I'd tease her because, you know, you already have 487 blankets at home, and she says, there's always room for another one, <laughs> you know, and there was time when she got to the point she couldn't drive no more. She discovered the electric carts at the stores. Oh my God. She was just hilarious on those. It'd be like, mom, you got to pay attention. Bam. And she'd run into the side side of something and be like, oops. I just kind of yell at people, you know, get out of her way. She uses people as speed bumps, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It was, we just had fun. We'd go out for lunch. We, I'd take her over to some of her friends that were still with us. She'd spend the day there, and then I'd go back and pick her up. Yeah. I was able to hear, if she would cough, I could hear her in the house. And that one day, she just didn't sound right. So I said, okay, Mom, you're not sounding good. Let's go to the hospital. You know, let's go to the doctor's office. Well, the doctor didn't like what he, what he heard, so he sent her up to the hospital well then the the breathing they weren't quite sure how good how bad so they sent her up to one of the bigger hospitals and then the day before she passed my family my brothers and sisters and I actually had a meeting with hospice because they said you know mom mom's at the end of life this is this is not going to get better now you know, it's, there's nothing more anybody can do. So we were talking with hospice to bring her home the next day. 
she was coming home the next day, which was the 4th of July, which was perfect because my brother and my fiance, they set up this great big 4th of July party and fireworks and everything for her because she loved fireworks. And they called me the next morning and they said, um, mom had a bad night, you know, and it's her weeks to months have now turned into hours to days. He said, your family needs to get here now. And we got up there and that afternoon we lost her. It was her lungs just had enough. They couldn't do it no more. The emptiness, it was it was so hollow in the house. You know, even we have my brother, I, we all lived together at my brother's house. And this is a big house. And it was just so hollow. It was so empty, even though everybody was here at the time. Did you find that that time, did time help you? Yes, time. You know, you're you're always, you're always looking for, because people always say, it'll be all right in time, you know, give it time. Yeah. And so I found myself always wondering where the hell time was, you know, you're not finding me fast enough. Yeah. Because I still had to take care of things. I still had, I didn't have that time to go in my room and lock the door and stay there for two weeks. Right. I had to start right away taking care of the family again, you know, and helping my little brother, even though he, he has down syndrome, he still understood mom was gone. Right. You know, and he understood heaven, but he would still go in her room and say, when's mom coming home? Are, are you suggesting through your book that, that people write to help them get through their grief? If it helps them, yes, 100%. If they feel they should talk to their ministers, 100% do it. Talk to somebody if you have that time, if you have that person with you. You know, get your therapy, whatever it is you need to do. Talk it out, write it out, yell it out, sing it out. You know, it, it will it will get better. It's just going to take a lot of time. Are you able to speak to grief groups or are you able to? I haven't. I haven't. I've, I'm thinking now with my book being out there that possibly the connection will come around. You know, I, there's a little restaurant mom and I used to go to all the time. I still go there. They, I still know all the people. Like I would take a book there. Well, I'm going to. Right now, they had a big loss in their family, so they actually had to go back overseas home. But when they come back, I'm going to talk to them about it. Your mom is Thank smiling you. somewhere. Oh, if not, she's going to kick me in the butt somewhere, yeah. too. <laughs> Thank you. You, you have, have a great day. You, too. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.